Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Annie Rowarda. Annie, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Listeners, in case you don't know Annie by name, you almost certainly uh, know what she gets up to on the internet uh, through Depths of Wikipedia, which is uh, one of my favorite things, honestly. Uh, Do you want to tell listeners who aren't familiar uh, if they have been living under a rock and don't like memes or fun things uh, what what you do? (laughs) For the past two years, I've posted funny things from Wikipedia on Instagram, and then now it's on TikTok and Twitter as well. Some recent posts include a picture of a cat staring at some grass. The Wikipedia caption (laughs) is a cat looking at cat grass. (laughs) Um, I talked about the athletics at the 1904 Summer Olympics, which you've talked about on this podcast, a great story that involves rat poison and wild dogs and apples that are rotten and purposeful dehydration, which you can already tell is a bad idea (laughs) for a marathon and all sorts of fun things from the best online encyclopedia that the world has ever had. Yeah, I love um, there are a lot of things I love about what you do. First of all, that you are like neutral about how important or serious or hilarious the content is. Like you share really interesting stuff, uh, stuff that like leads to really important um, like insights or conversations. And you also post things that are just inherently hilarious because they are like absurd taking out, taken out of context. Um, and that's how I feel like memes should be. Memes are just another medium. They are merely the platform, the content can be whatever we want them to be. 
I'm really passionate about memes. I think they say a lot about society and I care a lot about the Internet Archive. And so I recently started Depths of Internet Archive. That's um, something I did this week. So we'll see what that becomes. Maybe by the time this episode airs, it'll be um, huge and good or maybe not. Maybe it'll die out. Who knows? Well, I was going to say the other thing I love about what you do is that I feel like, you know, I am I'm a little older. I am 30 and I definitely I remember when Wikipedia was new and when it was what our teachers told us to like never cite. And I am very much uh, very frequently speaking to uh, boomers about how like actually it is a really incredible <laughs> Uh, encyclopedic database and like yes like anything else you want to like look at what sources they're citing and it's like starting point not an end point often if you're looking for like an in-depth coverage of something but it's this amazing collaborative resource and uh, I really love how much you love it because I think that that is something that um, actually a lot of people who are not like super internet native still have not wrapped their heads around so um, yeah I mean, it has everything you want to know. There's a list of fictional (laughs) raccoons. There are 6.5 million articles in English, and they were all written by volunteers who just wanted to write about them. I think it's beautiful. I think it's what the internet was supposed to be. I think Wikipedia is the best website ever. Amazing. Okay. Well, we are definitely going to hear more about Wikipedia, I suspect, strongly. I have some stuff from Wikipedia, as I always do. Um, But let's get into the show. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, editing Wikipedia, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kylie, why don't we start with your tease? I'm here to talk about how snakes have two penises, but zero legs. <laughs> I, love, I love how that's presented as as like an, uh, an equivalency, you know, like, like you, you they are related. Even a penis, they would have some legs. I'm, I, I suspect there's more to that statement. So I'm looking forward to, to getting more. into it. Um, Annie, what's your tease? Oh, I'm talking about the world's worst businessman. Oh, a high bar. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to hear. My tease, my fact is a little all over the place today. I'm going to be honest. It's not as neat and tidy of a narrative as I, I sometimes achieve. But I'll say that I started with spiny lobsters and I ended with home brewers arguing on a message board about making beer out of piss. So I'm going to share some of the stuff I learned between A and Z. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Should we just start with that? Let's just start with that. Get it out of the way. You guys don't brew beer with your pee? Yeah, I no, thought don't, everyone did don't that. do that. I'm definitely gonna say don't don't do that. Um, <laughs> but I'll I'll get I'll get back to that in a second. So I started off um, thinking that I was going to do a story about how lobsters um, pee out of their faces to communicate. And um, the thing is, I just wasn't able to find a lot about this that wasn't um, in the form of like a pretty specific academic paper about like 
particular qualities or problems posed by this method of communication among lobsters. Like there was one like, <laughs> does the changing pH of the warming seas interfere with lobster piss communication? Um, that was not the actual title of the paper. I'm so sorry if that was your life's work that I just summarized. But um, so that that I think is going to be a, a story for Another day, I'm thinking about starting a newsletter of some like weird sex stories that didn't make it into the book. And the lobster piss thing does have to do with lobster sex. So maybe um, maybe I'll save it for that. Listeners, probably by the time this airs, I'll have gotten around to launching that newsletter. So check it out, whatever it's called. But uh, that had me Googling a bunch of stuff about uh, urine in general, because I was thinking about how like... For us humans, given the way urine works for us, the process of making it and getting rid of it, um, the idea of it coming out of your face is like pretty gross. Um, But like really, urine does not have to have any association with like uh, a butt, your genitals. Uh, it, It doesn't have to be something that like comes out of the bottom of you in an area that is tends to be considered taboo and dirty, even though, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about how, you know, silly that is. But urine, as uh, people frequently rediscover on TikTok, is not actually like literally you drink water and it comes out the other end of you. It is your blood basically becoming more watery than salty. Uh, your intestines absorb water. It doesn't like go down into your stomach uh, with the food you eat, generally speaking. Um, And as your blood uh, starts to, you know, be kind of like more saturated with water, then your kidneys are filtering it out along with uh, lots of stuff your body needs to get rid of. And then it kind of sits in your bladder so that it has somewhere to go. And um, then you pee it out. So when you think about urine that way, in that it's really like a blood byproduct, not like anything that has to do with like poop, uh, it coming out of your face seems like way more neutral. <laughs> it's like spitting or sweating. It just, they happen to, you know, shoot their waste byproducts out of their faces and also use that to try to find people to have sex with, um, which is, I don't know, I guess relatable. But anyway, um, so when thinking about like, what facts can I share about like the human bodily process of making urine that will kind of like maybe make people um, uh, a little kinder to these like piss faced lobsters <laughs> and maybe not um, so grossed out by them. Um, I ended up stumbling across uh, a Wikipedia page for uh, Lant, which is basically the the product of fermented urine, um, which was used for all sorts of things uh, throughout history. And I was familiar with the idea that you would keep human pee around for useful stuff. I knew that um, it was used to like tan leather in a previous episode of Weirdest Thing where I talked about um, books bound in human skin. I talked about like the doctor who was really gross and used patient's skin. Uh, He like threw it into a bedpan to like deal with it later. And that was actually like a pretty smart way to preserve it because that's how you tan leather. But anyway, that's a different episode. Um, I also (laughs) remembered uh, in the Dear America books, 
the Revolutionary War one, I believe. Her mother is a laundress and she talks about having to save all of their pee to do the laundry. And of course, I was like, ew, old timey people. They lived so gross. They smelled so bad, probably. But yeah, so there is a name for this aged urine and it is Lant, uh, which is from the Old English land, um, which apparently referred to urine. I didn't go farther into the etymology than that. Um, But yeah, you would put it aside and you would actually ferment it, which I I didn't know that that was a crucial part of the step because that um, like ups the ammonia content. So there's actually like a lot of ammonium in this like concentrated fermented uh, human urine. And that has all sorts of uses. I mean, the ammonium um, is like caustic. So like I said, cleaning, uh, bleaching clothes and tanning leather. But it can also be used to make um, saltpeter for gunpowder. And this was actually like one of its most valuable uses. Um, So potassium nitrate, which is often called saltpeter. um, Fun fact, doesn't actually make you infertile or not horny, which is a very uh, common belief. People used to talk about saltpeter getting like slipped into like military members' food to like make them not uh, have, have be horny and have babies, which actually ties in very well to the previous episode about the horny gay bombs, but different story. But yeah, uh, getting potassium nitrate is really difficult, even if you kind of get the like natural starting point of it and refine it. It's like a really complex refining process, a lot of steps. And um, it's actually easier, especially if you don't live by kind of like natural deposits, to refine it from um, bat guano um, or bird poop or human urine. (laughs) If you have ever owned a bird or uh, a reptile, you know that uh, the sort of like slimy poop that a lot of animals produce um, smells a lot more like pee than poop because it's full of ammonia, just absolutely nasty. Um, So anyway, humans, for a lot of history, if they were making gunpowder, they were making it from uh, either like scraping up pigeon droppings or taking um, fermented pee and basically like distilling it and crystallizing it and um, producing this saltpeter. Now, I was looking for more information on this and uh, found a few really fun little sources that I'll link to on popside.com slash weird. Um, The Yorkshire Historical Dictionary has um, an unintelligible entry on the use of the word lant. Definitely not meant for people from outside of Yorkshire to enjoy, but um, I will link to it just in case. And the University of Delaware um, has an American material culture that I found like a random um, blog entry from uh, a a fellow from 2019 that was talking about um, their sort of pet project trying to figure out like whether there were formal systems of collecting or trading in urine to create land, since there are so many examples of ways it was used, not just around the home, but in like industry. Because obviously, you know, bleaching clothes, you could be like, well, people just like 
collected their own urine to bleach their own clothes, um, maybe scaled up slightly if you were like a laundress, but like people producing gunpowder <laughs> were probably needed it at scale. And there are references here and there um, where people will just very casually without citing a source say like, and the whole village was expected to participate. And this University of Delaware student was like, says who? <laughs> like, what was, were they compensated? Was this under duress? Was there a system? Um, so I'll link to this on popsci.com slash weird. Uh, they basically concluded that there was like no good information out there about um, how this worked. Uh, we do know that in 17th century England, uh, there was such a desire for saltpeter that King Charles I actually issued a proclamation that families had to collect urine from their homes um, and livestock, and they had to hand it over every day to saltpeter men who came to collect it. Um, and apparently in the 1600s, at, at times, they were actually allowed to go into private homes and like dig up um, like their dove houses and cellars to get the kind of like poopy <laughs> soil that was at the top of their like packed soil floors um oliver cromwell did then say like no saltpeter men can't just bust into your homes looking for dove poop which uh is is good i think um but that was the the only real instance this scholar found of like a a proclamation being like the pea is a shared resource we must contribute all hands on deck. Um, so yeah, it still kind of remains a little bit of a mystery, sort of like how different um, societies and individuals handled the fact that like this thing that everybody made was such a valuable um, commodity. You know, on the one hand, everybody pees. So you would think like there wouldn't have been um, such a rush. But on the other hand, any anytime something is a commodity, like someone will want to have the most of it or keep other people from getting it. So um, am I saying that someone should uh, write like a, a musical, a graphic novel about people like trying to control the piss trade? <laughs> yes, absolutely I am. And maybe that will be me. Um, one last thing, well, two last things I'll say because I promised to get back to the beer. So we do know a lot more about a related um, <laughs> a collection agency, um, which is the the job of gong farmer. Um, it's uh, the word gong from the word gang, which was a word for like going in some old English adjacent language. And these people were also sometimes called nightmen, and they were poop smiths. They collected the poop. They it was their job to collect all the poop. That was not because it was a precious commodity, but because um, for a lot of years in a lot of places, uh, the best way to deal with people having to go was having some kind of privy or cistern. Um, and those were designed to not be watertight so that the uh, the water would just drain out into the ground, which I'm sure was great, never caused any problems. Um, but you still had the, you know, the solids that would build up over time. So periodically, uh, somebody went in there and shoveled them out. Um, it was a well-paid job, but a... Uh, 
not a very well-respected one. Um, I saw a few sources saying that um, the so-called nightmen who were called that because they had to work overnight because nobody wanted to see you shoveling poop in the middle of the day. Um, <laughs> in some places, there were rules about like where they could live, uh, presumably because they smelled bad. <laughs> and I will say like a couple of the entries I saw on this um, leaned into the total myth that people during these time periods didn't bathe a lot people bathed people have like bathed in like every culture that's ever existed on the earth how they've bathed has you know varied depending on their culture and what was available at the time but like no medieval people didn't walk around just like not knowing they were smelling and not caring and certainly if they were able to uh, make fun of nightmen for smelling bad, that meant people were bathing and generally smelling good. So no, these were not dudes who walked around just smelling more and more of poop every day of their lives uh, and never showering, but um, they did have a pretty <laughs> hard go of it. Um, I will say that I have a friend who um, bought a property in Philadelphia and has become an amateur uh, archaeologist uh, because there are privy pits there. And she and her husband um, have like accidentally became part of the like very intense like privy pit digging community because you can find like amazing, um, you know, early colonial America artifacts. Um, I will definitely try to get her on the show. I've been meaning to for a while. So this is not the last we will talk about um, Privy Pits and their historical importance. Um, but yeah, we know a lot more about the guys who were hired to get poop out of town than we know about the guys who were hired to uh, get urine into a centralized location. And um, isn't that fascinating? The one last thing I'll say is that when it comes to the word lant, um, that fermented urine byproduct, um, one of the things that will come up, uh, there was a great Saturday morning breakfast cereal comic that referenced it that I'll link to on popside.com slash weird, is that there's this thing called um, lanted ale that's referenced um, in a few historical places. And it's basically the way it's talked about is like those sneaky low life taverns people will like make ale taste stronger by adding this like ammonia pee to it. Um, no one has been able to actually find like a brewer talking about doing this. Um, it is almost certainly just a case of uh, something I talk about a lot in my recent book where like people like to make fun of people who are uh, lower on the, uh, you know, the social ladder than they are or who came from a, a slightly earlier time. People love to think that other people are backwards. So a lot of times in history, like, we will see people talk about something um, and and there was a period in uh, academia where historians, if you were somebody trying to just like write a fun book, you might just like gather together all these things and be like, look, 10 different people talked about Lanted Ale. So it was definitely real. And it's like, you know how many magazines wrote about like rainbow parties in the 90s? Like we people just say stuff sometimes doesn't doesn't mean that it happened. Um so I'm going to come down on the side of saying that I don't think anyone actually um, made lanted ale. Certainly don't think it was like a common 
trend. Um, and similarly, you know, some of the stuff that people talk about fermented urine having been used for, I'm a little skeptical of. Like one that gets shared a lot in kind of like listicles is that people used it as a, a teeth whitener. And I'm not going to say that definitely never happened. But the source I see people citing a lot as like the original um, origin of this info is um, Catalyst, the Roman poet. And he's making fun of Ignatius. Basically, he's saying, you're so full of piss, meaning like full of it, uh, that you probably do what they do in Spain, which is like brushing your teeth with urine to make them whiter. So the brighter your smile shines, the more full of piss you are. And I'm like, that is, to me, very clearly a man lying about what people from a different country do <laughs> and using it to dunk on um, another poet. Uh, so I just think that whenever we're talking about something that like shocks our modern sensibilities as much as the idea of using fermented urine, um, that we maybe have a tendency to uh, like really let our minds go wild. And I think it's important to point out that like this was a really useful tool. And like, wow, how innovative that <laughs> this stuff that's going to be around no matter what, um, like makes your clothes cleaner, helps you make gunpowder, um, which is a thing you may want, uh, depending on where and when you are in history. Um, making rockets, like cool, fun rockets, uh, was, was a thing that saltpeter was often used for. Um, and yeah, cleaning. We, look, people didn't have a lot of options. So I think it's really cool that people found these uses for land. And um, I would love... Uh, to see historians be able to like dig a little more into like how this actually worked. Was there a system? I'm going to be following up with this person from the University of Delaware. I want to know if they learn more. Um, and also just like pour one out for the poopsmiths, you know, before indoor plumbing. Somebody had to do it. Um, yeah, that's my whole story. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was a roller coaster. <laughs> I feel like I learned a lot, though. <laughs> Happy to help. Every time I pee, I'm going to think of this. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it made, I obviously it made me think of um, Homestar Runner, but it also made me think of um, the second season of Miracle Workers, which is a great, hilarious show. And Steve Buscemi plays a poopsmith who is very proud of his work, as he should be, because, again, somebody had to do it. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. 
answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, okay, we're back. And um, Sarah Kylie, tell me about... <laughs> Snake peni, please. Yeah. So this will also um, be kind of in the poopy realm. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, um, I didn't know this. Um, apparently other people know this. I, I'm not really a lizard person. But um, yeah, male snakes have two penises. And a lot of lizards do. Which, I don't know, that blew my mind. I have, I have We've only ever had dogs. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a decent amount of lizards and other things have two penises. It looks like even um, some lizard-looking things don't have any penises. There's one marsupial that um, has a four-headed penis. So there's just everything out there. Um, so maybe maybe we'll hear about the marsupial next time. Um, but yeah, I've been living in blissful unawareness of the double penis conundrum, which is also called a hemipenis my entire life. Um, so now y'all can no longer live in ignorance either. And again... Just a really, really interesting Google search history look um, today. But um, the story of how I figured out that this existed is kind of fun. Um, so in the past month or so, I've kind of switched in my job from doing just science and sustainability to doing a little bit of kind of everything. And pretty much everything also meant that um, our new tech news writer, Andrew Paul, covered a YouTuber's like adorable little attempt at giving a snake, quote unquote, back their legs. Um, and so this kind of ended up being like a like a plastic tube that the snake slithered through and then had little robot legs which was really cute if you if you like snakes I mean I don't even really like snakes and I thought it was cute so um yeah and the snakes little like robot legs even like kind of waddled like a lizard so really really cute um but the real winner of the story is that I learned the fun fact that snakes actually have legs as embryos and those embryo legs um, that, you know, don't ever become legs um, have a lot to do with why they have two penises. Um, so the penis legs. Um, so yeah, snake penis legs has been the only thing in my Google search history for like two hours. A Faustian bargain for two penises, oh, if ever I heard Oh one. my gosh, yeah. I was like, okay, so there's got to be some, there's got to be lots of like fables out there that I just could not find because that is fascinating stuff. Um, but yeah, so millions of years ago, snakes did have legs. So f- about 150 million years ago we had ancestors of slithery snakes like walking around waddling around on their like lizard legs and according to a report published back in 2016 snakes still have the leg development ability in their dna but the make the legs happen switch is just kind of turned off so technically they have the capability i guess of growing legs um which you can see um kind of in their embryo to snake development but um 
So there's lots of like little weird things in this. And here's another one. Um, this is because of a gene that researchers call the sonic hedgehog gene. And I've spent like 15 minutes reading the same paragraph on Wikipedia and I still don't really understand why. Um, but yeah, so if I say sonic the hedgehog, it's about a gene. Um, and it's responsible for growing limbs. And so these researchers found that the sonic hedgehog gene flickers, quote unquote, briefly in python embryos that are around 24 hours old. And the gene previously hasn't been spotted in actual, like, slithering around pythons. And so the, for the first 24 hours of embryonic development, snakes have legs. And then a light bulb goes off and they're like, no. So why that happens is still, you know, a little bit of a mystery. Um, but yeah, so Martin Cohn, who is a professor at the University of Florida, who is an author of that python study, told NPR back in 2016 when it came out that the sonic hedgehog gene controls the development of more than just arms and legs. But DNA regulates whether they turn on and off or not. And these regulators are called enhancers. So this is all backstory. We're just talking about legs right now. We'll get into the penises in a minute. Um, but pythons don't have that enhancer anymore. Um, somewhere down the line of the past several million years, it was just chopped from their DNA. And it's not just pythons, boa constrictors, cobras, vipers, etc. are all missing the hedgehog enhancer. So they've got the hedgehog gene, but they're missing the enhancer. So... That's what's going on, I think. Um, but weirdly enough, the gene activated in the making of fingers and toes still works um, in snakes. So that's another weird thing. Um, Cohn and his researchers uh, made a pre-cartilaginous model of all the skeletal elements of the limb of the, you know, embryo snake. Um, and apparently there's like a whole leg and foot growing. Like there's like, they're like ready to go um, before Sonic the Hedgehog turns off. And... So that's kind of the mystery, like, you know, the introductory mystery of why snakes don't have legs. It's not like anything like super dramatic. Um, you know, there's lots of theories about why this might have happened. You know, snakes wanted to hunt more slitheringly or swim better. Um, but yeah, that's still uh, something to unpack uh, in the future. Um, but yeah, so what does all that have to do with the double penis? Well, this is the exciting part where some of Rachel's reporting at the Washington Post from 2014 gets to join the story. So we can jump back to a 2014 study in Nature that focused in on the differences between squamates, which is like the big genus of lizards, and amniote penises. Um, so this 2014 study found that in lizards, snakes, birds, and mammals, the development of the genitals is run by the embryonic structure that is the cloaca, which is basically, like, in humans, it's like an embryonic butthole, but uh, lizards and birds and stuff get to keep it. Um, and so it's an everything, everything hole. Everything hole, yeah. So when we're talking about um, bird poop, t like, smelling like pee... It's because the poop and the pee come out of the same place. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another thing I learned. Of. I probably should have known that. But um, I, I think yeah. it's okay so, yeah. Like, you know, now you know it and that's great. But I think that's okay for you to not have just know it off the top of your head. Yeah, I just am learning a lot. I learned a lot today. <laughs> um, <laughs> so obviously humans don't have a cloaca except for when you're embryos. We have anuses. And, you know, that's where we get rid of solid waste. Um through the anus and um but cloacas are for everything so number one number two everything goes out this hole and it also kind of works for reproduction too it's just like an everything hole um so yeah woohoo exciting stuff um but yeah so fetuses have cloaca which is which basically when you're developing um whether you're a lizard or you're a person or whatever it signals to send out nearby cells to turn them into genitals um, the location of the cloaca is key, though, because in lizards and snakes, it's right up close to those hind legs or the hind legs that 
could have been, I guess, for snakes. And so um, the lead author of the study, um, who is a postdoc at Harvard, said, apparently in both locations, there are pools of cells that have the ability to receive this call from the cloaca. When you move the signaling center, you can recruit different cells. So when this... um, this postdoc plopped cloaca tissue near the growing limbs of chicken embryos. Um, you had chicken penises growing close to their legs. Um, so it's a, it's a location game. Um, so a little bit of butthole tissue placement can make us have leg penises. Um, so that's step one. And so there's even more um, to unpack here. Um, <laughs> all around the same... The 2014 to 2016 was like the prime era of figuring out um, what was going on with legs and penises for snakes. Um, But since um, even before then, in 1997, a study came out where we figured out that there are two genes that direct the development of legs and genitals in mice. So there's a gene out there or two that basically are doing the same thing, um, enhancing, quote unquote, genitals and legs. So... Basically, these light these are kind of like the light switches with Sonic, um, like make things grow or not, and they're both at work in penises and in legs. And I think it was yeah, 2015. A bunch of scientists were like, "Well, what the heck about snakes? Like, they don't have any legs." Um, so they searched the sequence genomes of snakes, um, a boa constrictor, a Burmese python, and a king cobra, and found counterparts of 65 mammalian limb enhancers. So they have the enhancers. Um, But they also found that about half of the enhancers were active in genitals as well as limbs in mice genomes. So we just, there's just all of this stuff that is similar. And this article that I found that was describing this from Ed Yong in National Geographic back then, um, lip enhancers are also active in the genitals, but not the eyes, skeleton, or brain. They're more like an all-purpose appendage enhancers rather than limb-specific ones, turning on similar suites of genes in arms, legs, and penises alike. So exciting stuff. And so after they figured this out, um, the researchers took one of the enhancers, HLEB. Um, I've been reading it as HLEB, um, but I know that's probably not right. But the researchers took one of the enhancers, HLEB, and chopped it out from the mouse embryo DNA, which it caused the mice to have smaller hips and penis bones, which makes sense. So, um, And then they replaced the HLEB in mice with lizard HLEB, and it served the exact same function as mouse HLEB. So it helped build the mouse penis and legs. Um, but then they replaced the HLEB with Python LEB in the mice, and mice only regained control of the genes in the genitals and not the legs. Um, so funnily enough, it also switches on some genes in their noses, too. So just weird stuff all around. But yeah, moral of the story. Uh, this one's a short one. There's not. I wish there was more research to talk about um, when it came to all of this. But um, snakes have two penises, and for various genetic and evolutionary reasons, those penises are kind of where the back legs should be, or they would have been in the past. So yeah, and another fun, there's a couple other fun penis snake facts that I have. Um, Excellent. So we could just throw those in. Um, they only can use one of their penises at a time. And apparently, like, if you're, like, in competition for um, a, a lady snake, um, it's, like, whatever's closest um, kind of makes the cut and they can rotate them. So it's like, oh, okay. Um, which I is just... They can rotate them is the sentence that really like, broke me. But. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I This was too far in the rabbit hole for me to dive into <laughs> on a Friday morning. Uh, but yeah, so they can use them both, but not at the same time. Um, and also, apparently, their penises are like not like tubes, like kind of like how a mammal penis is. It's like a slide. So it's like 
Imagine, like how I picture it is like a, a snake is an airplane and like an emergency <laughs> slide comes out and the people come out. So <laughs> that is what I picture it to be like, except it's on both sides of the plane. Um, so that is, <laughs> wow. that is what I have gathered from this. Um, Perfect. So yeah. Uh, but, you know, female snakes also have a cool reproductive fact, which I felt like they deserve a <laughs> shout out because this is so devoted to their male counterparts. Uh, but they can control their pregnancies and when they get pregnant. So they can store sperm for like five years before becoming a mom, which is really cool. Good for them. Um, because, yeah, I think I'd be traumatized after the double <laughs> penis um, slide event. I think I would need some yeah, time. Yeah, they need to take some um, time. Well, and what's <laughs> funny about that is that, you know, snakes are it's still not super common but they're like one of the kinds of animals where parthenogenesis is the most common meaning you know the female reproducing without help from a male um basically just like self-fertilized eggs that are sort of little clones of herself um and whenever it happens in captivity they always first have to check that like she wasn't just holding on to some sperm for a really <laughs> long time because <laughs> there's there, there's always the chance that even if she's like I'm lonely even if there time. hasn't been a male in there for like 20 years or like maybe it was that and then you know they'll test them and it'll be one or the other I've definitely covered studies about both one I, I definitely covered a study that was like wow this snake sure held on to this semen for a long long time and then once where it was like oh nope that was just her that was all her so <laughs> they have a lot of options there are so many there's two penises if you want to go that route with one snake like there is a lot um lot there but yeah so no legs two penises and those things are related that is the, the one-liner <laughs> well Amazing. i like the sonic hedgehog shout out because the story of that is so funny i just pulled up a 1994 article in the new york times called a gene named sonic but dr clifford tabin a developmental biologist at harvard medical school wanted to name each newly detected gene in this category after hedgehogs so the first one is the Indian hedgehog. The next one's the moon rat hedgehog. The next one's the desert hedgehog. But then Dr. Robert Riddle, trying to be goofy, finds the most important uh, one <laughs> of all that determines limb formation um, for all of us. And he yeah. names it Sonic Hedgehog. And so now doctors have to sit down with parents and say, hi, like your child might have these really serious limb um, abnormalities. What's what's the gene responsible for this? Oh, yeah. Sonic Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little funny, but it also mm, could be a little bit frivolous. Yeah. But hey, I'm all about jokes. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when we get into there are ethical issues that come up in terms of scientists and researchers and clinicians naming stuff that they identify for exactly that reason where it's like it's all fun and goofy until that's something that is is coming up in conversations that like really impact people's uh lives um and are, are part of like really intense conversations um and yeah, so on the one hand, I I love that he pulled that gag. On the other hand, I can definitely definitely see the argument for changing it. 
There's so. so many funny biology names. This is a rabbit hole. This is not my uh, topic, but there's also <laughs> Mothers Against Decapentaplegic. Decapentaplegic. Somebody, I'm sure, has a better pronunciation out there than I do, but they find that this mutation in the mother's gene represses the embryo's decapentaplegic. <laughs> I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> and... um. I'm just going to stop saying that word, but they name it Mothers Against Decap, blah, 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 kind of to be like Mothers Against Drunk Driving as a joke. That's a little rude. Oh. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, that's... Everyone at home is just Ooh. cracking up, but they thought it would be a little goofy. <laughs> yeah, well, and it comes up in, um, like, I think the ones that get publicized a lot are are, like, species names, and I think in terms of gene naming and disease naming like people kind of reined it in a few years ago like I I don't think obviously I'm sure there are exceptions but I feel like there was a seems to have been a general agreement that genes should just have boring names that we're not gonna like cause problems later but in species people will still be like this is the Beyonce's butt bee and you know yeah. often that's all good fun and then every once in a while you get one where you're like oh oh wait okay. a minute scientists they're people too um we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact Okay, we're back. And um, Annie, the worst businessman of all time. A really, a tall order. <laughs> he might actually be the best businessman of all time. Oh, okay. And I promise Ooh. there are no penises in this one. There's no talk <laughs> of poop. Um, it's not quite as scientific. But when I saw that you talked about the 1904 marathon saga, I was like, oh, I can definitely talk about Timothy Dexter. So buckle up because uh, in the biography written about this guy in 1858 by Sam Knapp, the first sentence is, never since the flood has there lived a man so little appreciated as Timothy Dexter. And it goes on to say, the fame of this singular man was not confined to the town, county, or state in which he lived, but many of the anecdotes respecting him have been published in different parts of the world. Basically, this guy is super well known. He's kind of laughed at by high society. They're not appreciating him. And this biographer is arguing that this guy is actually shrewd. You can judge for yourself whether this guy is an idiot that got lucky or if he's the smartest businessman ever. So... (laughs) What do wool mittens, coal, whales, Bibles, and stray cats have in common? Well, they all turned this guy into a really rich 18th century businessman. So he was born in Massachusetts, well, what is now Massachusetts, in 1747, and he had almost no formal education. He dropped out of school as a little kid. He became a tanner's apprentice at 16, and then when he was 22... He married a rich 32-year-old widow, and together they bought a mansion. Okay, so already he's kind of winning. I don't know what he said to score this widow, but he, boom, becomes rich. Good for Timothy. After the Revolutionary War in 1783, he was about 36, he bought a ton of depreciated continental currency. Um, That was the paper money that was in circulation from 1775, the start of the Revolutionary War, 
And before that, like, like we had no central bank, you know, D- different places had different currency. They were trading beaver pelts. Like it was kind of just whatever, anything goes. Then they have the continental currency. They print it like crazy. And they actually um, suffered from some economic warfare when the British people introduced even more continental currency. And Ben Franklin later said that it was a tax that people paid to pay for the war. They had all this continental currency. It becomes worthless. And that's a form of taxation, according to Ben Franklin. So that's a little rabbit hole for you about that. Um, And today, sometimes we'll say not worth a continental. Maybe you say that. My uncle says that. (laughs) I have heard it. (laughs) It comes from this. Okay, so Timothy Dexter buys a bunch of it. He's taking a bet here and everyone's laughing. There was a lack of power because some founding fathers were strongly opposed to the idea of a national banking system. Like there was no Federal Reserve. There wasn't even a treasury until 1789. And Congress couldn't buy bills back in exchange for bonds. So like they couldn't stop the depreciation through taxation. No power to levy taxes. I'm getting all these flashbacks to American history class. So anyway, (laughs) 1778, it's only 15% of its face value. Wow, really sucks. By 1780, it's 2.5% of its face value or what it was before. (laughs) By 1781, they're worthless. They don't even circulate. Um, And Congress decides, hi, we'll buy back your continentals for 1% of the face value in treasury bonds. However, in Massachusetts, where Timothy Dexter lives, they pay face value. So this guy gets even more money. He then builds two ships. And he decides to export things to the West Indies, the Bahamas, Turks and Caicos, Trinidad and Tobago, Dominican Republic, um, all the places that you'd want to go to vacation. That's where he decides to do trade with. And I'm using West Indies because that's the term that his biography used, but that's just one of those Christopher Columbus terms that distinguishes the West Indies from actual India. Anyway, first he sells bed warmers. This is a deliberate ploy by rivals to bankrupt him. Why would they need bed warmers where it's very warm all the time, right? Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> he, he sends them on ships and people find them and they and they say, hey, actually, these can be ladles for the molasses industry. He makes a huge profit. He then sends wool mittens. He intersects with some merchants and they say, oh, we're going to Siberia. Can we buy these from you? He makes a huge profit. It's the luckiest man who ever lived. People tell him jokingly, send coal to Newcastle. This is a British idiom, and it describes doing something pointless. Because Newcastle has a massive coal supply. It's in northeast England. So he truly sends coal to Newcastle. Again, this is where where you wonder, is this guy an idiot or is he actually smart? I think he might have been an idiot because he sends coal to Newcastle. The day the cargo arrives, the miners go on strike. And so he makes a ton of money by doing this. How did he know? How did he know this? He sh- I, there's no way he There's knew. no way he knew. He ships gloves to the South Sea Islands, which is in Oceania. Again, very warm. And the gloves get bought by Portuguese boats that were already going to China. He takes a ton of he makes a ton of money. He exports Bibles to the East Indies. Again, Indies is this BS age of discovery term made up by colonialists, and it doesn't really make sense anymore. But he's going to the Indian subcontinent. Not a lot of Christians there. I don't really know how the Bible market would be in India. What do you think? Probably not that big. Well, actually, it was huge. There were a bunch of Christian missionaries that didn't have Bibles. 
He then sends stray cats to the Caribbean islands, again makes a profit because they had a rat infestation. A lot of this is coming from him. He's telling these stories. So you have to take it with a grain of salt, but some of it is backed up. Like the Newcastle thing, that's real. Um, he, <laughs> that's the one I would think was definitely not real. <laughs> um, the New England Historical Society wrote about him. Um, and they say, like, yeah, this guy drank all the time. But they said, despite his drinking, Dexter still has a business sense. Irving Wallace noted Timothy Dexter founded his fortune on sobriety and hangover. He never drank in the morning and he never conducted business in the afternoon. So he just has his cycle. Maybe that's how we have to do it, guys. Maybe that's how we're going to make it big. Maybe we're going to be sober in the morning and then drunk all <laughs> afternoon, just like Timothy Dexter. <laughs> Sounds like a very healthy way of living your life. He hoarded whale bones by mistake. How do you do that? Yeah. By mistake? Not quite sure. Whoops. This is, this is written in Margaret Nicholas's book, The World's Greatest Cranks and Crackpots. And then he ends up selling them profitably when corsets come in vogue because the whale bones can be used mm. to make corsets. Like, that's crazy. So <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so by this point, he's very wealthy and he's completely ostracized by New England socialites because he's really weird. <laughs> He's still married. Collects whale bones. <laughs> He's still married, but he has quote a roving eye, according to one biographer. And his wife's not happy with him because he drinks all the time. He gets this big house, <laughs> <laughs> and then another house in New Hampshire. So he's in Newburyport and also in Chester, New Hampshire. And meanwhile, his relationship with his wife was really suffering. So he looks like he's winning at life, right? But he's losing at what matters to him, which is fitting in. Remember, they say, like, ship coal to Newcastle. And he was like, sure, I will. And maybe that was just an attempt to fit in Aww. or to make friends. We'll really never know. Um, he t often told visitors to his house that his wife, who is alive, had died. He was like, yeah, oh, she died. And he would say that that was... He gives that energy. He would say that was her ghost. There are, <laughs> there are written documentations that he just said that his wife was a ghost. So no wonder she's not really happy in this marriage. In one notable episode, he faked his own death, holds a funeral, 3,000 people attend the wake, and then he just wanted to see how people reacted. When he did not see his wife cry... He popped out, he shows up, and then he promptly canes her. I think that's really funny and until the caning part. And then it's like, wait, actually, this isn't really funny. This guy. Yeah, this, this guy sounds this, like he uh, was like a, a psychological uh, terrorist. So. Uh, like it's giving like American Psycho. Yeah, absolutely. Just like yeah. this man in his house of horrors full of whale bones. <laughs> telling people you're a ghost okay so so he's reaching the end of his life and he writes a book to share all his wisdom that he has learned he calls it a pickle for the knowing ones it's available for free on project gutenberg it's also available on the wonderful internet archive it's 25 pages about it's about nine thousand words and i mean i can read you some of this but it is truly nonsensical there's a preface which I was reading and I was like oh this is actually totally cogent like this is making total sense to me and then I got to the actual book and I was like oh oh wait a second um just I can't, I can't really like show you with my speech the way that the spelling is so inconsistent and the capitalization is random but you just have to know this <laughs> 
This is the first sentence. To mankind at large, the time has come at last, the great day of rejoicing. What is that why? I will tell you, thou's three kings is raised. Raised, you mean, should know, raised on the first royal arch in the world, almost not quite, but very high up upon, so they are good mark to be seen. So the women's like to see the front, and all people love to see them, as the Quakers will come and people slyly and feel good, and say, how the doe friend Father George Washington is in the center, King Adams. He's describing his house, um, if you didn't catch that. <laughs> it's This sounds like someone just trying to make an approximation of someone like from that era talking like a nonsensical just like word jumble that if you're not paying attention it's like I thought I was talking about the apocalypse (laughs) yeah I also thought this was about the end of the world so I believe that he is um talking about his home which was an outdoor museum with 40 wooden statues of figures. Louis XVI, Adam and Eve, John Hancock, the first three presidents um, that he was describing in the, the paragraph I read clearly, as you all wow, understood. Wow, all the heavy hitters. All the, and it, also has, it also has Timothy Dexter right among those great <laughs> men. Course. And it says uh, the motto, I am the first in the East, I am the first in the West, and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. So that's his house. That's his museum. It attracts people who become weirdly fans of him. By the way, this book, he um, self-publishes it. He distributes um, for free. And people back in the day, like this was published in 1802, they really had a taste for irony. Like I always forget (laughs) that people back then sometimes had similar senses of humor. Um, And it becomes a cult classic similar to The Room. Um, Amazing. he, He prints it. It goes through eight printing cycles and people got really angry because there was absolutely no punctuation in the entire book. There's (laughs) 8,847 words, no punctuation. So he decides to add some pages at the end of just punctuation and he says, sprinkle them in as you please. (laughs) That's actually hilarious. Honestly. This man. All the power to this guy. I'm shocked he didn't become like president or something. Oh, I know. Um, So... Lots of the people that knew him considered him to be a bit stupid. And his obituary, when he did eventually die, said, quote, his intellectual endowments not being of the most exalted stamp, which was rather polite. (laughs) (laughs) He died in 1806 at the age of 59. His home remained for a while, but then a storm in 1815 damaged the statues um, they are no longer there. And we just simply remember his legacy from the stories that are told about him. And, of course, A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, which has many Goodreads reviews. I'll read the top the top reviews on Goodreads. Perfect. Short, incomprehensible, and utterly bizarre. Highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, that's like, I mean, that's, that's like you could describe life that way. Another top review is just <laughs> Philosophy Genius. so never since the flood has there lived a man so little appreciated as timothy dexter and i hope that the takeaway is that sometimes if you're a total misfit things might work out for you sometimes if you act with delusional confidence you might be successful can you imagine this guy on twitter can you you even imagine the tweets he would come up with I can because I think 
I think we have several successful businessmen today who um, <laughs> who are are living it. They're they're uh, keeping keeping his legacy strong. As you were starting this story, the like hapless, like successful by accident guy in the islands, I was definitely picturing like uh, Reese Darby in Our Flag Means Death. But then once we got to like, actually, this man was probably psychotic and, and really cruel. I was like, no, I take it back. He doesn't get to be played by Reese Darby. Um, but I still would definitely, I would consume some fiction about about this uh, this very kooky, confident guy. He's like terrible Forrest Gump. That's yeah, kind of exactly. how I see it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if Forrest Gump actually existed, it would probably be more like Mr. Dexter. The, the darkest Forrest Gump timeline, absolutely. <laughs> um, wow. Thank you so much for that. I cannot believe I've never heard of this man before. And uh, will I read his book? No, probably not. But uh, oh. <laughs> I will watch the inevitable uh, HBO uh, show about him where he's oh, 100%. Yossified. Um What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? What are people feeling? Timothy, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be thinking about him for a I, while. Yeah, you know, I think that the accidental whalebone hoarding is something that's going to be um, really really bothering me for a while i'm really gonna be like was he like a really dumb time traveler or something like there's there, like <laughs> that, uh, it's giving like i don't Sorry, even so know like, like outlander from, uh, is, that, is that the character from um back to the future biff whatever that yeah he just accidentally he's he's just a, like a man <laughs> with, a, with an almanac in the right place at the right time uh <laughs> I will say that the the detail about whale bones was driving me nuts because I was like, I need to know more about how you accidentally hoard whale bones. Who just does that? Oh, yeah. My closet where I keep all my whale bones. Like no one says that, you know, Um, and it's written in this book by Margaret Nicholas. I tried to get my hands on it. But unfortunately, it did not come to my house in time. So perhaps the Wikipedia editor that cited that book was making something up. And I mean, you never know with Wikipedia. I am a big Wikipedia fan. I'm the Wikipedian of the year, I just found out. But congratulations. Thank you. I, I mean, now I just sound like I'm bragging. But I'm just going to say that, like, you know, all Wikipedia editors know that Wikipedia is not a perfect, reliable source, and you should always check the citations. And on this one, I was not able to. So yeah. well, take it with the Well, you know, salt. books aren't always reliable sources either. Most nonfiction books aren't fact-checked. And when I was writing my book, if I was trying to track down the origin of something and the dead end was a book, I was like, they made it up. They fucking made it up. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I think, like, Wikipedia, maybe, like, that's more obvious to people and that's like better because books people are just like they grew up being told like don't believe what's on the internet you got to go check it in a book and books people (laughs) it's really fast and loose let me tell you what my book was fact-checked and thank god (laughs) because there's a lot of stuff that was wrong in there um annie congratulations on being both the wikipedia individual of the year and the winner of this week's The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Woo! Thank you so much. It's and so fun to be here. Yay! I've been such a, I've, I've been such a long-time listener, first-time guest, that this is really exciting for me. Oh, my gosh. Well, definitely not a last-time guest. We will have you back. 
and uh, listeners, uh, definitely check out uh, Depths of Wikipedia and Depths of Internet Archive. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.